This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. The first word that we used a couple of weeks ago was the word God, or that we looked at was the word God. The second word uh, from last week was the word Jesus. And the third word that we're going to look at today, as Donna's saying, is Christ. Christ is from the Greek word, looking at the New Testament, from the Greek word Christos, the Latin word Christus, and it originally in its noun cognate meant anointed thing or anointed one, one who is anointed. Back into its verb cognate, the original idea of Christ was something or someone, or rather, it is the smearing or the rubbing of oil. So the noun would be someone who has oil or a type of the Holy Spirit is the implication of Scripture, smeared or rubbed on them. Uh, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament Scriptures was Mashiach, or we transliterate that uh, Messiah. But most of you know, or a lot of you know, that this idea of Christ or Messiah or anointed one simply was the idea that a human being had been divinely designated for a holy office. To anoint was to, we use various terms, to anoint was to consecrate, to bless, to hallow, a word that I grew up with frequently was sanctify, which simply means to set apart, and in this sense is to set apart for a holy purpose, to ordain. So a Christ or a Messiah was an anointed one of God, one who was specified for a particular work. In the Hebrew scripture, the offices of priest, uh, prophet, king, these were anointed offices, or they were supposed to be anointed offices. There was some wrestling at times because God seemed to indicate that the people chose their own representative as opposed to allowing God to do the choosing. You remember the story of Saul contrasted with the story of David. Saul was picked by the people because he was good looking and head and shoulders above all the rest. David was picked by God, though ruddy in complexion, small in the least of Jesse's son. But the scripture says that man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside. So this idea of Christ, in a general sense, meant that there were many, and please don't hear this wrong, but in the Hebrew text, within the story of the Jewish people, there were many Christs. There were many messiahs. There were many who were either as priest, prophet, or king, many who were divinely dubbed and sanctioned for a specific role. Often those who were called would uh, symbolically, especially kings, they would have oil, oil by the priest poured over their head. And again, oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit would pour over their head and drip down onto their garments, indicating that they were God's person. Now, as a, correlate, as a correlative to that idea of Christ, it's also important to note that in the history of the Jewish people, one very consistent thematic thread that really weaves its way all the way through their story is the idea of salvation. Uh, Pastor Melissa is actually going to take up that subject next week. The fourth word will be salvation, and she's going to do uh, the sermon on that. So, uh, But this idea of salvation or deliverance from difficult if not impossible circumstances, is a common theme throughout the Hebrew text. 
And time fails me to go back in and enumerate all the stories of salvation deliverance, but you know, just kind of rehearsing, if you grew up in Sunday school class, you remember the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They're replete with stories of deliverance and salvation. You come on to the story of Moses and Joshua, the period of the judges. Again, filled with stories of deliverance by the hand of God. The book of Judges itself covers a period of two to three centuries. And when you read that book, it's literally the story of 12 to 13 cycles of deliverance. The people would fall into disarray spiritually. They would be subjugated by a foreign nation. God would raise up a deliverer or a savior. A Christ-like figure, a messianic figure would be raised up and the people would be delivered through the hand of God mediated through that person. So all throughout the story of the Hebrew text, there's this idea of salvation. Now, I've already intimated this, but let's be clear. In almost every story, if not every story, but in the vast majority of the stories of divine intervention in the Hebrew scriptures, there was always a human deliverer. God ultimately was seen as the one doing the delivering, but it was mediated through a human structure, through a human being. Sometimes it was more than one deliverer. Sometimes there were multiple deliverers. But these were people who were like Samson, like Gideon, like David, like Moses. They were specially touched and empowered by God for the task of leading God's children out of harm's way and into safety. So many stories that we could look at, but you remember the story of Moses. When he was 40 years old, he flexed his muscle, killed an Egyptian, looked at God and said, I'm your man. And that kind of hubris was unusable by God, and God shook his head and said, not so much. Can't work with you. 40 years later, Paul said the outer man perishes, but sometime the inner man's renewed. Sometime... Steve, you know this in men's work. You drill it into our men all the time. What's lost in the outer sometimes is gained in the inner. And as Godric said, what's lost is nothing compared to what's found. Forty years later, at the age of 80, muscles atrophied. God, through the burning bush, says to Moses, I'd like to use you. And Moses says, you've come too late. You missed the opportunity. I had a lot to offer 40 years ago. God smiles and said, I've been waiting to hear you say that for a long time. I can use you now. And the story there, and you can chew on this, the story is when Moses thought he was usable, he wasn't. When he thought he wasn't usable, he was. Humility goes a long way with God. God raises people up in incredible stories such as the story of Moses. And God uses them literally in the salvation process as small s saviors. Well, fast forwarding ahead to where we are, in the centuries before Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord, there was, to say the least, in the children of Israel, a brooding sense amongst them that deliverance was coming. This was a group of people positioned in the Levant, that little eastern portion of ground between three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, on the east coast of the Mediterranean. Called by God to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, they felt like in their hundreds of years of existence that all they had ever been was a group that had had a, a fleeting moment of glory in the reign of David and Solomon, but for the most part, they had been, as I often typify them, a ragdoll caught between a German shepherd, a Rottweiler, and a Doberman pincher. 
And they were always being torn apart, used, enslaved, subjugated by the large nations around them. And they had a sense that one day, it was a mistaken sense, but they had a sense that one day they would be the top dog. One day they would no longer be the chew toy. One day they would be the Doberman. They had that sense throughout their history, but especially in those years before Jesus, when they went through the 5th, 6th century, they went through a, a period of successive enslavements, uh, exiles. You remember before they had fallen to the Egyptians and then on multiple occasions to different Canaanite nations, but now in these centuries, just before Christ, they went into what was called the exile, and the Assyrian Empire to the east dominated them. And then when Assyria was usurped by Babylonia, they were dominated by Babylonia. And then when Babylon was usurped by Persia, they, for a little while, was even into the cap uh, under the captive hand of the Persians. Interestingly, Cyrus, the king of Persia, in 539, looked favorably upon the Israelite people and let them go home. That's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, ultimately when they came back and rebuilt the walls and Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, the temple that Jesus walked in. Well, in, in that season, Cyrus was literally called a Messiah. Cyrus was called a Christ. Cyrus was one from outside the Israelite nation who was called to be a savior of the people. So there was always this idea, but ultimately in those centuries after the exile, the, the people came home, and, and they truly believed that by the hand of God, now they had been delivered, and now they would be the top dog. But it didn't happen. The Persians were usurped by the Greeks, and the Greeks were ultimately usurped by the Romans, and Israel was little more than the chew toy yet again. And so there was in the heart of their faith, this idea that God was going to deliver them, that God was going to raise up a messianic figure, the oppression and the subjugation they had experienced from the nations would finally be turned. The developing idea of a human figure actually grew out of a broader sense that salvation was coming from the hand of God directly. Look at a couple passages with me. Isaiah 43 is a, a text that we often look at in this regard of a messianic, Christ-like figure. But before there was a figure, there was God. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, don't fear, for I've redeemed you. I've got this. I've called you by name, you're mine. We talked about that last week. You are many things, but one thing for sure, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, boy, haven't we loved this text through the years. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So look here, you've got Redeemer, Savior, Deliverer. I, the Lord your God, the Holy One, the Anointed One. This idea is replete in their text. I'm going to give Egypt, the ones who used to hold you, I'm going to give them as a ransom for you, Ethiopia and Seba. I'll give them an exchange for you. Skip on down to the 11th verse. Read a few more verses there. I am the Lord, and beside me there's no Savior. God's pointing out that he's going to do this. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you're my witnesses, says the Lord. I'm God, and also henceforth I am he. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can hinder it? 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. That's enough of that text. Go to Isaiah 61, the next text, for brevity's sake. Another text indicating that God's going to be the deliverer. You remember this text from the life of Jesus, but hear it now in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. To provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit, they'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They'll build up the ancient ruins. Uh, Enough, we could keep reading the text. But the bottom line is there was this general sense in Isaiah that God was going to deliver. And then Isaiah extends and gives us what we know as as Christians, we know them as as the servant songs, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, chapter 50, and then the end of chapter 52 and 53. Uh, We won't look at those texts, and you can take Isaiah 61 down. Um, There's so much to say about this, but suffice it to say, in the servant songs, there began to really foment this idea that God was not only going to deliver, but there was going to be a servant. A servant was going to raise up. Isaiah 53 even indicated that the servant would be a suffering servant. And the people walked with that text, not fully understanding it for a long, long time. And over that space of a few centuries, the Jewish family began to identify in their minds what this figure would look like, what this figure would do. This figure would be mosaic in type. This figure would have power in his hand to wield the staff of God and perform miracles, perhaps. More specific to the location of the prophets when Isaiah was writing, this figure would be a king. And this figure would come from the Davidic line because their golden age, their archetypical age, was that time when David was on the throne and the kingdom was its largest and most prosperous And their Messiah would be one like David who was chosen by God. Suffice to say, and you know this, the followers, the early followers of Jesus saw Jesus as that person. Now, they had a developing sense that he was that person only for that sense to come to a crashing demise in his crucifixion. But after his crucifixion came a resurrection, and we'll speak to that in just a moment, and 30 to 40 years later, when the early Christian community began to reflect back, they clearly painted a picture in their gospel writings that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Christ that Isaiah had spoken of. A couple of texts. Look at Luke 3, Christmas story. We just read it a couple of months ago. And I like the way this text sets up. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias ruler of Abilene. You say, how in the world do you know how to pronounce all of that? I don't. You just read real fast and people think you do. (laughs) There's something you learn in seminary. It's all, as Richard Johnson says, all the way you hold your mouth. So... What I like about that is we're about to talk about the Messiah, 
but the text is making clear the nations are still doing what the nations do. Governments of men are still building. And in the midst of human kingdom development, something else is brooding. Not only in, in the midst of nationalism and empire building, but also verse two, there's another empire, it's a religious empire, a religious institution. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Interesting. God bypasses the nations, bypasses the religious institution, and taps this rogue guy to anoint him. And he, he speaks to John in the wilderness, and John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. See, here's the story unfolding. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Lord's going to deliver, but there's someone that's going to come before him. It's going to pave that road for him. That's going to make the way clear for him. And every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh, all flesh, look at that, all flesh will see that not just Jews, but Gentiles, all flesh will see the salvation of God. When God does his deliverance, it will fulfill the promise to Abraham that I will bless you, that you might be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is bigger than one little group. Look at verse 15 of that same text. John was preaching, and as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, they thought maybe he's the Messiah. This guy was looking pretty good to them. The crowds were gathering. And John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming, and I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If God is the deliverer, Christ will come before, and John was a pre-Christ. John was a pre-Messiah, tapped by God. But John said the real Messiah is going to come, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God because he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's why on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, Peter stood up and he said, what you're seeing right now, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. What did Joel say? In the last days, saith God, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So all of this is wrapping together now from the Hebrew scriptures. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. All flesh will see the salvation of God. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Two more verses, verse 21 and 22 in the same chapter. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit, there's the idea, it's always the Holy Spirit, it's always the oil that comes down to anoint. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Last week we talked about how he left with that voice ringing in his ear, he was driven by the Spirit, the anointing of God straightway, the Bible says the Spirit led him into the wilderness. He was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, look at Luke 4, verse 14, right after the temptation. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, 
returned to Galilee. So he's going to start his ministry now. And I want you to notice how Luke tells the story here. Jesus returns to Galilee fresh from baptism, fresh from his temptation, readied for ministry by the power of the Spirit that filled him and was going to baptize all flesh through him. And as he went to Galilee, a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. And when he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up, where he was known as a carpenter, he went to the synagogue. Remember, Jesus is all about the story of identity. So he goes back to his home country to a group of people who knew him simply as a, a woodworker. And when he comes to Nazareth, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and as was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, over in the corner of every synagogue, there was something that looked like a barrel, and in that barrel was scrolls. Very few synagogues had all of the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, we take that for granted. We got Bibles on the shelves everywhere. Very few synagogues had all of the Hebrew scriptures, but they would have portions of them. The really elite synagogues would have the entire Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the writing. In the synagogue at Nazareth, we don't know how much they had, but we do know they had a scroll from Isaiah. And Jesus requested that, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And Jesus stands up in front of them, and he unrolls the scroll. Can you see Jesus standing there in front of them? He unrolls the scroll. He doesn't have his, nobody's putting it on the screen for him. And he's rolling through. And maybe with his mom and brothers sitting there in the crowd, Jesus He finds the place where it was written, remember this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The picture was clear. The writers told the story of how Jesus began his ministry by quoting, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Isaiah 61, he's anointed me. I am the servant. The songs are about me. I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, the anointed one, and he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after that, I love this, don't you wish all preachers did that? Just read the scripture, roll it up, and say, I think that'll about do it. There's homiletics by Jesus, the art of preaching. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant. They put it back in the tub, and he sits down, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I won't take time to read the text, but if I had time today, I'd take you again through Luke 24. But let me just remind you, we've looked at that text a lot. Jesus gets up out of the grave. He appears to the women. And then the next appearance of Jesus on Sunday afternoon is to two guys on the road to Emmaus, a few miles away from Jerusalem, brokenhearted men going back to their lives without Jesus. They are sorely disappointed by Jesus. They have been let down because their expectations of him have not been fulfilled in him. 
And as they're walking along the road, Jesus appears. Luke actually has this as the first appearance of Jesus. Matthew and Mark say that he also appeared to the women about that same time. But he appears and he walks up and they don't know who he is and he says to them, what are you guys talking about? That's great. What are you guys talking about? Steve, I keep thinking about the way Roar and Nowen has taught us to do. That's why we don't call it men's ministry. We call it men's work. The best men's work, and I suppose it's the best women's work, is when the Holy Spirit just comes into the conversations we're having and says, what are you guys talking about? He can always start, Dave, with the text of where we are. Hadn't we found that out to be true? And the Bible says, oh, we were just talking about how sad it is that Jesus is gone. Uncanny, Richard. They're talking to Jesus about how sad it is that Jesus is gone. Sounds like our prayer sometime. And instead of revealing himself, the Bible said he let them continue to talk, and he kind of acts coy, ignorant to what they're talking about, and they get incredulous with him. This is amazing, Jerry. They look at him and say, are you the only guy around here that doesn't know what happened this weekend? And Jesus just lets them talk. And they ultimately lament to him and they say, listen to this, the reason we're disappointed is because we thought this was he who would redeem Israel. We thought this was the redeemer. We thought this was the deliverer. We thought this was Isaiah's savior. You can call it savior, deliverer, redeemer, Christ, Messiah. We thought this was the guy. And the Bible says that Jesus, right there, began to talk scripture with them. And from the biblical text, there was no scroll there. They didn't pull out his little Gideon's Bible. He just, out of his heart, begins to tell them, guys, actually the scripture said that this was going to happen. Actually, the scripture said that not only was this going to happen, but that he was going to be buried and resurrected. And they still don't get it. And they finally come to the end of the road and they ask this guy who's a traveler, stay with us tonight, it's a dangerous road. He stays with them. You remember the story, it preached it nine different ways. This text has so much in it. He breaks the bread, they immediately see him. And when they see him, he disappears. Remember epiphanies and disappearances? He disappears. And when he disappears, they said, oh man. We should have known because didn't our hearts burn within us when he read the scripture to us on the road? And we've all had that experience. We've all read the scripture and thought, <laughs> and we've read the scripture and said, oh God, our hearts burn within us. All of us know the difference, don't we? And we wish it was always burning hearts that could read the scripture. But the Bible says they immediately left there and they went and they found the other disciples. And while they were there, collaborating on all their stories of the resurrected Christ because the others had had some incidents as well. The Bible said he showed up, he appeared to them, and he began to open their minds that they might understand the scripture. And as he opened their minds that they might understand the scripture, Jesus literally said the law, the prophets, and the writings, they all testified of how the Son of Man must needs be crucified, buried, and resurrected the third day. 
It's an incredible story. But suffice to say for us, from the resurrection on, Jesus began to be known by his followers as the Christ. And hear the definite article there. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah, the deliverer, the savior, the the Christ. So much so was he known as Jesus the Christ that ultimately you can see in the development of the writings of those earliest followers Jesus the Christ began to be not replaced but more and more it began to be written Jesus Christ I, I joked in my letter that Christ wasn't Jesus last name but honestly it almost became his last name it's like impersonally you know someone can have a title if you don't know me I'm Stan the pastor but the longer you get to know me, the longer you get to know me, Stan the pastor can become to you Pastor Stan. That's like Grace Mitchell, my grandma, my dad's mom, she became for all of us Mom Mitchell. She's Grace Mitchell, the mom, but ultimately she was Mom Mitchell. My great-grandmother, my mom's grandmother was grandmother Edgar, Laura Edgar, the grandmother, the mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, but ultimately, I didn't look at her and say, you know, Laura Edgar, the grandmother. I said, grandmother Edgar, mother Mary. Ultimately, that, they call it the titular use, the title use, loses the definite article, and it becomes an appellation, not the Appalachian Mountains, but you remember Appalachian, A-P-P, a common name. And Mary the mother becomes Mother Mary. And you watch in the writings of those who first loved Jesus that even that appellation, even that sense of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, by the time you get deep into the epistles, the name Jesus many times is dropped and it's just Christ. It's not a title. But you move from Stan the pastor to Pastor Stan to just Stan. Or people who've known me a long time, and it's not, like, it's not like a caste system, but they call me pastor. Jeff James here at the church calls me preacher. And it's a term of endearment. Stan the preacher, preacher Stan becomes preacher. And that happened until Jesus became so synonymous with his role that the role became a synonymous name and for Christians we have hung our hats on the words of the angel to the shepherd back in Luke 2 verses 8 through 11 and there were shepherds abiding in the field by night and the angel of the Lord appeared unto them and said good news for unto you today is born in the city of David a savior the Messiah, our Lord. Savior, Messiah, Lord. Jesus, Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, Deliverer, Son of David, Son of God, Son of Man, Anointed One, Christ. But a twist began to happen very early in the development of Christian theology, and this is so important I'm about to 
share with you some things that have opened in my heart over the last few years, particularly people like Richard Rohr have spoken life into me through some of these ideas. And if you want to hear a more complete conversation on this, I would encourage you to, to go online and just type in Richard Rohr, Cosmic Christ. I know it sounds a little odd, but cosmic probably is not the greatest word, but the concept is so beautiful. Just punch that in, pull up a few YouTube lessons of Richard Rohr, but let me give you just a taste of this. In the early development of Christian theology, specifically Christology, the study of Christ, we began to see that the experience, the reality that we knew as Christ or as Jesus was more extensive than the experience localized in that one man. We begin to get a sense that what just happened in that manger, in that life, in that cross, in that grave, in that resurrection, we began to get a sense that it was vast. And it could not be contained in the story of this 33-year-old human, this bronze-skinned, olive-eyed Galilean named Jesus. The experience that began with Jesus' birth at Bethlehem, we begin to think, I don't think it began there. Now, we, we didn't immediately have this downloaded, and I've got to tell you, we're still chewing on this, and a lot of it is still unfolding for us as the mystery of Christ continues to unveil. Listen to Paul. This is 20 years after the resurrection. You want to know what the Christian church was saying two decades in? Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, as he is a good Jew, and, and watch this now, Paul's going to teach you how to read scripture here. I want to remind you of something that's so incredibly important to us. Paul does not think he's writing scripture. It took a century, really up to three to four centuries, for Paul's writing to actually be corroborated as scripture. Paul is a Jewish man, and he's doing what's called midrash. It's what all good rabbis did. Good rabbis knew that Israel meant people who wrestle with God, one who wrestles with God. And so one of the ways you wrestle with God is you wrestle with what is called the Word of God, the Holy Scripture. And for Paul, the Holy Scripture was what? The Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament. So if you want to learn how to interpret and wrestle with Paul, just watch the way Paul wrestles with Moses. That, that's the deal. What Paul's giving you here is not simply fixed and final propositional truth. What he's giving you here is the way of holy people with holy scripture. You wrestle. So watch Paul teach us how you deal with the Bible. Paul says in a letter, he doesn't know he's writing an epistle to all churches. He's writing a letter to the Corinthians. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. And all of them, now he's looking back, Paul's chief interpretive lens for the Hebrew text was the life of Jesus. We all have interpretive lenses we look through. We have enculturations. We look through southern eyes. We look through female eyes. We look through male eyes. We look through whatever your culture is. We have eyes that we look through. Paul believed that the greatest hermeneutic lens by which to interpret life and scripture was Jesus. Because Jesus had said that the scriptures testified of him. 
that the scriptures all pointed to him and reflexively Jesus could point back to them and you could literally see the two reflecting one another. So Paul looked through the lens of Jesus and he says, you remember that story where there was a big red sea, Moses was there with all the people and the waters opened up. Paul said, you know what that's about? Sure we know what that's about. A group of people were delivered from Egypt and God drowned all the bad guys in the water and got the good guys through, right? Paul said, kind of. It's about more than that. Paul said those people were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul said that was baptism. Paul looks at our baptismal waters and he looks at the Red Sea and he says, oh, that's baptism. In the same book, now Paul's gonna say we are all baptized into Christ. But just like we're baptized into Christ, those folk were baptized into Moses. You know what it means to be baptized into someone? It means you are totally bought in to their worldview. You're totally bought into their teaching. You have sold yourself out to the life force that is in them. Baptism, that's what Jesus was talking about when Jesus looked at the people and said, can you be baptized with my baptism? He wasn't saying, can you get in the baptismal tank and hold your breath for two seconds? He was saying, baptism is about being immersed, not just in water, but into a way of life. And standing on the shore of the Red Sea with walls of water 100 feet high on each side, Moses said, follow me. To walk down into that water with, can you imagine big walls of water? It's like an aquarium. You walk up and there's a shark looking at you. Can you imagine the kids sticking their finger in the water? To go down into that water was to be baptized into Moses. You've got to believe in him. Paul looked back at that ancient story and said, I'm sure it has not been read this way in 1,300 years, but I want to tell you how to read it. That's baptism. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Watch what he does with scripture here. And all ate the same spiritual food. What's that that fell from heaven every day? The manna. They ate spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. What did he just do? Is Paul running fast and loose? with the biblical text? No, he's doing what you do with the biblical text and he's not cutting superficially across the surface but he's digging down in the text and embedded in a text that's hundreds of years old is a meaning that nobody's ever seen before. This is a time release capsule that is human consciousness and experience affords you the capacity you now see like you've never seen before. I promise you, when the story of Moses was written hundreds of years before, do you think that Moses led the people through and said, one of these days, there's going to be Christian churches, they're going to have baptismal tanks, and they're going to immerse people in water, and that's what this is all about. Not on your life. But Scripture's meaning unfolds as human consciousness has capacity to see it. And Paul says, not only was that Red Sea baptism, not only was that manna the daily support that we get from God, his mercies that are made new every morning, 
But Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 tells us throughout their long journey in the wilderness, sometime they got thirsty, and on at least two occasions in their thirst with no water around, a rock appeared, and God said to Moses, smite the rock, and when he smote the rock, water came out. And Paul got to thinking. He remembered that a sword pierced Jesus' side and blood and water came out, sacraments of the New Testament covenant. He remembered a story from the lexicon of the Lord's life about a woman at a well, and Jesus asked her for water and then turned it around and said, woman, I can give you water and you'll drink from it and never thirst again. He remembered that Jesus stood on the last day, the great day of the feast, as they tipped the water pots and the water rolled down the steps of Solomon's porch and Jesus cried out and said, if you're thirsty, come to me. He that believeth on me as the scripture is set out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the spirit that they that believed on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out for Christ was not yet glorified. Paul began to think water of life. And Paul looked at the story one day. Can you imagine? It wasn't here, but one day he looked at the story of a rock and water flowing out of it and the Israelites drinking. And Paul stood up and he said, that was Christ. And the early church began to get this sense that Christ was bigger than what we saw in a manger. That Christ was so large that he couldn't be contained in the life of one man named Jesus. That's why Jesus even said on the night before he was crucified, you're going to have to let me go. I'm going to return to my father. I'm going to go back into that space for my father is greater than I. And then he pointed forward and said, but the Holy Spirit's going to come. The father and I are going to make our abode with you and you're going to have in you the same spirit that raises me from the dead and you will be called the body of Christ and greater works than I do shall you do. There was fullness, incarnation, and incarnation pointed again to fullness, the fullness of God's spirit. And even Jesus himself looked at Mary and said, let me go, don't hold me the way you want me that I might be for you what you need me to be. Paul looked at the text and he said, that rock, that was Christ. He was before Bethlehem. He was before Mary's womb. That kind of reading of the text, Greg Boyd, I was talking to, uh, texting back and forth with Greg last night. I'm so glad to have made this new friend great theologian. He was here a few weeks ago. Greg and I were doing what preachers do after service somewhere. We were sitting around, and I, I remember I said, what are you working on right now? And he said, something has come to me, and I'm trying to write it in a book. I've been working on it, and it's almost too good to get written down. But he said, you know all those stories in the Old Testament that make us think, that make us think lots of things? Make some of you think you don't ever want to read the Bible again. Make others of you think, I mean, what happened between the Old Testament and New Testament? It feels like God got saved. You know, God became a Christian. God gave his heart to the Lord and turned over a new leaf, right? And you read those stories, Michael, and they, they're mind-numbing. You read a story like Numbers 34 where God says, go kill everybody. They go and they kill mostly everybody. They came back kind of sheepish. God said, you get it done? They said, yeah. He said, no, you didn't. You didn't kill the old people and the women and children. 
And the people say, we got to kill them all. I mean, it's the stuff of ISIS. It's the stuff of jihad. It's, it's awful. And, and we try to reconcile these texts. And it's like, I can't reconcile them. And so we just stay out of the Hebrew scriptures and we just read the new, but they're always haunting us that these stories are embedded. I mean, we, we miss it so bad. We, we make our nurseries into the motif of Noah's Ark. Our nurseries. We have this ark with giraffes and hippopotamus sticking their head out and it's all great in our nursery. Read the story again. Everybody gets drowned, including the babies. We try to clean the stories up because we don't know what to do with them. Numbers 34, the people say, oh, we got to kill them all. He said, yes, go back and kill them all. They turn around to go back and kill them all. And God said, eh, don't kill them all. People are like, oh, thank God. No, no. God says, don't kill the little girls who are virgins. Keep them for yourself. What do you do with that? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You wrestle with it. And great theologians like Paul wrestle with that. And great theologians like Greg Boyd wrestle with that. And Greg came up with a plausible interpretation that's the best I've heard yet. John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures and you think in them that you have eternal life just because you read the Bible. But he said, these are they which testify of me. Greg said, Stan, I have been stuck for years. This is one of the 25 greatest living theologians who has an ardor for the Lord in Scripture. And he says, Stan, I've been stuck for years that Jesus is talking about Numbers 34. I mean, the Jesus who pulled children into his lap and said, this is the kingdom of God. And it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and jump off into the ocean than to hurt a little one. And then I've got to reconcile, Bradley, that to the God that's killing everybody. And then I've got to act like what extreme Islam or political groups, you can argue that one all day long, but extreme forms of religion do to other people. And I've got to act like our story doesn't contain any of that. It, it takes a, a real song and dance or smoke and mirrors to make all of that work unless you do what we're supposed to do with the text, and that's wrestle with it. And Greg, Dr. Boyd, said, it finally occurred to me that the way that awful story can testify of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love in Jesus was his willingness to lay down his life. We just celebrated 50 years after Selma, and we have been reminded, just a few weeks ago, we had a man on our stage on the snow Sunday. Some of you watched it online. People paid extreme prices for what they believed in because greater love hath no man than this than he lay down his life for his friend. People for love of another are willing to pay prices. And that is agape. That is love. And Greg said, if that is love, the fullest expression of God that we see in the face and life of Jesus is in the cross. And Greg said to me, I'm trying to track with him, he said, so you're there with me. The fullest expression of God that we see in Jesus is what we saw on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel 
when a great speaker and a frail man bled his life's blood at 39 years old. You put your money where your mouth is and you lay down your life for another and you find out what you really believe. And Greg said, if that's true, then the fullest expression of God's love we see is when Jesus hung on the cross. And what did he do there? Tanya, a lady walked up to me right where you're sitting there after service, and all she could say is, I am hurting so bad. And her husband tried to explain to me after the first service all of the surgeries and the disrepair that her body is in, and it was extensive and it was real. And this young woman was hurting so bad and I could not offer her immediate relief but I took her hand and I began praying that this hand that I hold is the body of Christ and Paul said that we fill up in our bodies the sufferings of Jesus which were incomplete and I did what anybody in the right mind would do and that's I threw a coin in the wishing well called prayer and said, God, somewhere in your sovereignty, would you help her, heal her? Doctors, supernatural, I don't even know the difference between the natural and supernatural anymore. I just know that you love her and you can do all things. Help her because the unremitting torture of pain that she's in it leads people to psychological brokenness. It leads people to do harmful things to themselves and others. Give her relief, I prayed. But ultimately, in all of that, the thing that I think offered her some solace and some peace was that she was connected to the sufferings of Christ. And she told me that, that this is connected. And so the question of theodicy no longer is how could there be a perfectly loving God, a perfectly powerful God, and human suffering? I can't reconcile that, but in the person of Jesus Christ, God at least shifted the question to not why do humans suffer, but to why does God suffer? And at least we don't have an unscathed leader on the backside of the ether watching us go through things. The suffering of God is God's greatest defense. And Greg said, so he gave us solidarity in the cross. He had a mother that he had to look at a friend and say, would you take care of my mom? His father wasn't there because he had probably laid his own dad to rest some years earlier. There was solidarity in the sufferings of Jesus. Hebrews 2 said that he had to be made like his brothers and sisters, that he might be a faithful, merciful high priest but he did something else beyond solidarity. Greg said, remember Stan, he bore our sin. And we've looked at that so many different ways. Christus Victor, atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, ransom theory. There are so many different ways to look at him bearing our sin. But just hear me. He bore our sin. Christ Paul said, bore our sin. And every broken thing that humans have ever done, 
2 Corinthians 5 said, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's all in him, in Christ. And I, I wasn't tracking, and he said, did you hear what I just said? He said, Jesus bore our sin. He became sin. Everything you've ever done in this maturation process called life that's fallen short of the ideal human life, all that, Hitler's and yours, he bore it. And Greg said, notice, he didn't commit it. He didn't do the sin. He bore the sin. And if Jesus, now look at him. Look at Jesus on the cross. Blood, sweat, tears, and mucus matted with vultures and birds of prey perched on his arms, pecking at the scabbed mess. Whispering through bloody, parched, dry lips, I'm thirsty. Screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does God say that? The only way that God could be moral, God lived a fully human life, and it is no human life who has not experienced a sense of God's abandonment. And God so finds solidarity with us, Chris, that he experiences the felt absence of himself. But in that picture, we see what is true of all of us. He is estranged, not separated, because God can't separate from God's self. But estrangement is my sense that I am separated. And God cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here, the next words out of his mouth were, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He did not commit our sin. He bore our sin. So if the one who bore our sin says, look at me, filthy and ugly, who has never committed a sin, but all of yours have been projected on me, and I have borne them. Another picture of the Christ is the scapegoat that we lay our hands on because we can't get rid of our stuff, and we scapegoat one another. We can't bear our own brokenness, so we make it his fault or her fault or somebody else's fault. We scapegoat. We lay our hands on that animal and say, run, goat, run, and we drive it into the wilderness. And those things are gone but not forgotten, and worse, sometimes they're forgotten but not gone. And it never finds its healthy resolve until God comes and says, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it all. And I'm going to bear that which I didn't commit. Now, if that Jesus says, the Old Testament testifies of me. They called Jesus a sinner and he wasn't. They called him a blasphemer, and he wasn't. They said that he was trying to destroy everything, and he wasn't. They said that he came to bring death, and he said he came to bring life. And after all of that, he took all of the brokenness of humanity, bore it, and then looked back and said, the Old Testament it tells my story. Then that means all of those atrocious stories 
You say, well, I thought those stories were written under inspiration. They were just like the cross was done under inspiration. It was an inspired thing that God would bear sins God didn't commit. And in the Old Testament, when God is saying, we're yours and they're not, and you want us to kill them because they don't have the truth and they're infidels, that sounds vaguely familiar contemporaneously. All those stories about God being on our side and not on their side, and God saying, kill them because they're not on your side, Actually, through the lens of Jesus, the way those stories, a Jesus who set children in his lap and said, don't you hurt one of these little ones, how does that Jesus represent the God that killed all the babies? Because the God of the Old Testament was crucified literarily, and he did not commit those sins, but he bore those sins, and we projected onto God our own brokenness, and we made God in our image. And so now when you read the stories, they are as inspired as the cross. But God did not do those things. He bore them. And as you wrestle with the biblical text, I'll close there by quoting Paul in Colossians 2. And you don't have to put it up on the screen, but just read Colossians 1 and 2 when you get home. Actually, Colossians 1 Paul wrestled further with the Christ and he went through the manger, through the cross, through the early church, through the old church, past the rock, past the waters, past the ram that stirred in the bush that was the Christ that Isaac might live. Paul said it's deeper than that. It even precedes Adam and this world. It precedes a 14 billion year old universe Paul said, for he, Christ, is the manifestation of the invisible God. And it pleased God that in manifesting God's self in creation, in the universe, it pleased God to put all creation, things made and unmade, things visible and invisible, to put all of those things in Christ. So when you think about this universe that's expanding, either at an increasing rate or decreasing rate, depending on which physicist you hear, but when you put this universe that's expanding, have you ever thought, what's it expanding into? If it's expanding, it's got to be sitting in something and expanding into something other than a material universe. Oh, it is. Paul said it pleased God to manifest God's self in Christ and Christ was the firstborn of all creation. And the entire universe is just an extension of Christ so that we see Christ not just in the baby in the manger, but we see Christ in nature, in the universe, until ultimately we see Christ even in the prisoners that some of you visited this week in Florida prisons. And Jesus said, as much as you've done it unto them, you've done it unto me, because I wasn't just the rock in the wilderness, I was the prisoner that you visited. Because in Christ, all things have been made, and Christ is creation. Christ is the decision of God to manifest God beyond God's self in the other. And Christ was the firstborn of all creation. And finally, the church decided 
that the firstborn was eternally born with no beginning, but the birth of Christ was the unending plan of God to have other than God's self, and that other than God's self is every created thing so that now on this little planet, this little speck of the universe, we see only a portion of the divine plan, and that is that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Logos was with God, and the Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we now, the body of Christ, see that Christ everywhere we look. And as the scientists peer down into the microscope until finally past the atoms, we come to electrons, and past electrons, we come to quarks, and past quarks, we get to the indivisibility of something invisible. And there is no reason for all of this to be held together except Paul told the Colossians, and in Christ, all things are held together. And what science has lost words for, Paul 2,000 years ago said, I have a word for that that holds the quarks together. It's Christ. And he concludes, Brad, by saying, not only is all of creation, including you, in Christ, but he said, Christ is in you, your hope of glory. What a word. What an idea. What an incredibly universalizing principle that gets me out of my little narrowness and lifts my face from the manger of my religion and my own personal narcissism and sees a spirit that is being poured out upon all flesh and a Christ that can be seen even in the toothless face of a murdering woman whose hand I held this week. And I gave her a little piece of bread to mash between those undentured gums. And she looked at me as though to say, even for me? And I said, yes, Christ, even for you, the body of Christ. What a story. What a gospel. It's too big to share it all, so I'll stop roll the scroll up and say, that's what I was talking about today. <laughs> Lord, thank you. Sweet Christ, thank you for your presence that is under us, over us, in us, through us, around us, and even now is the gravitational force that holds the universe together, is the force that holds the electrons together, and is the gravitational force that holds our lives that even now feel like they are spinning out of control. Christ that is under us, in us, and through us, hold us together today. Ground us in you and in this great gospel of all things made new. May we see the Christ everywhere we look today. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. amen. Chew on that one a little this week. Remember Richard Rohr, look him up. God bless you, go in God's name.